0: Amen. Lord, we thank you and do praise you, Lord, that you do live within us. You're not a faraway, distant God, but you are a, a risen and living Savior, and your Abba Father, your Daddy, who we can crawl into your lap and draw near unto you. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your Spirit to dwell within us. Lord, we pray now that your Holy Spirit would minister to every heart that is here as your Word is taught and goes forth. Lord, maybe your words and not man's. Lord, for the sake of your people, may you use this marred and imperfect vessel that you might be glorified. Lord, we lift up the children's ministries to you tonight and be with the the youth group of Pastor Vince. Lord, we just come before you humbly, desperate. We desire to know you better, to be the men and women of God you've called us to be. Be with us now. Minister to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter th- four. Continue our verse by verse study through the Old Testament. Encourage you for Sunday. Read Colossians chapter one. We'll be uh, starting another of Paul's letters as we continue verse by verse through the New Testament. We'll take a moment to catch you up briefly. It's a great chapter. Wow, it's a great chapter, but they all are. Amen. But. I want to say this, we come to Judges and we know that this is now a time we're going to see, we're seeing a repeated falling away of God's people. They repeat the same pattern over and over and over again. After Joshua has passed away from the scene, now they've come into the land, they've won the victories, but sadly they didn't obey God's word completely. Instead they left some of the giants in the land, they didn't wipe them all out, God told them to, and they would come back to haunt them. Because those giants and those people that were left in the land soon built their altars or left their altars. And before you knew it, the children of Israel were falling into their worship. But you remember we saw how that happened slowly. What would happen first is they would leave the altars in the land and leave the people in the land because they could get tax money from them. They said, hey, why get rid of them when we can make it profit to us? And sometimes we do that with our own pet sins. You know, why get rid of it when we can make it profit to us? Why, why eliminate it completely? I'm going to heaven anyway, and that's what Satan always tells you. Well, you're going to heaven anyway, and you're born again, and you know, he's a gracious and a merciful God, so you can hold on to that and enjoy it and still go to heaven at the same time. By the way, that's never God's highest for us to compromise, amen? God's desire is we walk in the center of his will that we be holy for he is holy, We've been seeing so far the consequences of compromise. First, by leaving the people in the land. Then we saw the thorns of disobedience, where their sin and rebellion did indeed have consequences. Guys, our sin has consequences. We're forgiven, we're going to heaven, but our sin has consequences. And we should never take it lightly. And then last time, we saw. I uh, titled The Message, Bringing Down Strongholds. And we looked first at the high cost of compromise, and then we talked about the faithful judges of God, that God used to deliver them out of bondage. And through that, we saw ways we can bring the strongholds down in our own life. Othniel, used with, filled with the spirit of the living God. Ehud, using a, the sword or the dagger. You remember a picture of God's word. And then thirdly, Shamgar, who just used the tool that was in his hands. And God wants to do the same in each of us. We pick up tonight in chapter 4, and we're going to start another one of those seven time cycles we see throughout this book. Seven times in this book, we see the same thing happen over and over again. What would first happen is they'd be walking with God, doing well, the judge would die, and as soon as he died, and he wasn't around anymore to keep them on the narrow path, to remind them to keep their eyes on God, they would walk away from God, they would rebel against God, and then God would have to bring in the consequences, and in would come someone to capture them. Now they'd be in captivity. They'd be in bondage for a number of years. And then finally they would rep- repent or they would cry out to God. I don't know that they were repenting. They were crying out to God because they wanted to get rid of their consequences. And God would bring a deliverer. Well, that happens seven times in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges takes place over a 400-year period. And as we get now to chapter 4, we're getting ready to start another one of those cycles. But you might say, why do we... Why do I need to keep coming for the book of Judges if this is going to keep happening over and over and over again? I mean, this is just kind of redundant. If it's in the Bible more than once, it's in there for a reason. Amen? And each one of them has applications for our lives today. It teaches us, again, first about the heart of man. The fact that he keeps falling away, that teaches us about the heart of man. The Bible says that man is perverse and wicked above all things. That's why psychology doesn't work. Oh, I'm in trouble. That's why psychology doesn't work. Because psychology says man is inherently good, and the Bible says that man is inherently wicked. Psychology says man can overcome man's problems through man's own efforts. The Bible says without him we could do nothing. And you know, it's so contrary one to another, and the point is that we need to see repeatedly the wickedness and the falling away of man so that we might understand the great grace of God. He keeps taking them back. Isn't that a great message for you and I? They blow it, he takes them back. They blow it, he takes them back. They blow it, he takes them back. Sounds like my life. God is such a gracious and a loving and a merciful God, and we see this pattern for a reason. At the same time, it's going to teach us about this incredible compassion, but it makes us less and less confident in ourselves and more and more dependent on God's grace and mercy. Now, we get to chapter four, and I'll tell you, this is an incredible chapter, because Man, just some awesome stuff in here and some really great pictures that apply to our lives today. I titled the message, for those of you who take notes, Courageous Women of Faith. My prayer is that every woman in here is going to be encouraged by this message and every man in here will be exhorted because the reason these women have to step up is because the men aren't doing their job. And I see this a lot in the Christian church today. Men who are abdicating what God has called them to do so their wife is having to do it instead. And we see that there's nothing new under the sun, but that is not God's calling. God has called a man to be the spiritual leader. And we're going to see tonight the only woman that God ever gave as a leader over Israel. We'll talk about why she had to lead and how she led. Then we're going to see a woman who had a compromising husband. Don't be elbowing your husband. You know, of the, these women have a compromising husband, a husband who would not make a stand for God. Trying to be neutral, oh, I'm kind of serving God, kind of not, you know, I'm in the middle of the road here, and we're going to see how she has to step up and make a stand for the Lord. So this is going to be an exhortation for the men to step up, but it's also a humiliation for the men because of what they had done. Now this is like, this, I'm telling you, this chapter would be like a, an, an awesome movie. I mean, this would be incredible. And so I'm going to introduce you to the cast of this drama real quick. And then we'll take a look at them. But we're going to see these cast of characters in tonight's text. We're going to see a man by the name of Jabin. He's the king of Hazor. He's a, he's a tyrant. He's a wicked, vile man. And he's oppressing God's people. But he was only allowed to oppress them because God first used him as a tool to bring about judgment. We're going to see a man by the name of Sisera. Sisera, or Sisera, is the captain of his army. So you got Jabin, the wicked king, and Sisera, or Sisera the captain of his army. Then we're going to see a man by the name of Heber. He's a, a Canaanite neighbor. He's related to the children of Israel. But as we're going to find out, he's a compromiser who didn't want to align with Israel or against them. Like, well, I kind of want to be for God and not against God, but I don't want to be with them. And I don't, you know what I mean? And it's like a lot of people today, you know, hey, I want to, I want to be a Christian. I my get out of hell free card, but I don't want to be standing up proclaiming my faith in front of other people because I ain't about that. I'm just about, you know, just going with the flow, man. Just go with, you know, any dead fish can go with the flow. Amen? The point is, we need to be swimming upstream, and we need to be different than the world around us. So we'll see Jabin the king and Sisera, the captain of the army, and Heber. And then we're going to see Heber's wife, a woman by the name of J.L. And J.L., we're going to find out, is handy with a hammer, and that's going to be interesting. (laughs) Now, lastly, we're going to see Deborah and Barak. These are the two, Deborah's the judge of Israel, a prophetess, a woman of great faith and courage, and then Barak is a reluctant Jewish general, I think of a reluctant husband or father. That's kind of what Barak is like. And this guy needs to be slapped around a little bit, and God's going to use Deborah to do it, to encourage him to be the man of God that God is calling him to be. So along with learning from this cycle going over and over and over again, in Judges 4, there are great things that you and I can learn. We're going to see what happens when God's men don't step up. We're going to see the powerful results of exhorting others from the word of God. We're going to see one of the greatest examples of a woman of great faith and courage. We're going to see how God can even use a faithless compromiser as a part of his sovereign plan. We're going to see how faithful obedience to God's word can bring down the greatest enemies the world can throw at us. We're going to see that those who put their faith in themselves and their own strength will soon find themselves alone and running for their lives. We're going to see that in tonight's text. We're also going to see that if we remain, we can only remain neutral for so long, at some point we've got to choose what we're going to do with the Lord. And then lastly, we're going to see an Old Testament Testament picture of a New Testament principle of how you and I could put our old man to death. So let's begin by looking at courageous women of faith. What, What a woman, what's a woman to do when her man won't stand up? What's she supposed to do? And you know what, I want to admit, this is going to be a balanced message, because that's, you know we talk about it, the Bible talks about women submitting, but that doesn't mean that women submit when their husband is completely out of God's will, and is commanding her to do something contrary to what the Word of God says. Now she is to follow Him, even when it doesn't make sense sometimes, and we'll talk about that as we go through the text. So let's begin looking as the cycle of rebellion begins, we'll see that starting again, the sin and rebellion and judgment, and then crying out to God. Look at verse 1. When Ehud was dead, Ehud was that guy that came in with the sword. Remember Eglon? The Bible says the only guy in the Bible described as a very fat man. Now, in case any of you start feeling like, well, maybe he's talking about me. He had a 480-inch waist, according to tradition. So we're all feeling real trim right about now. (laughs) 40 feet around, that guy was thick, okay? But Eglon, as we know, Ehud was the guy that came before him, and he stuck the dagger into his stomach. And when the dagger went in, what came out? Who remembers? Dirt came out. When the word of God comes in, the dirt comes out, amen? The sword. And so he was the one that brought, you know, brought Eglon down. And when Eglon came down, Jabba the Hud in my mind, right? When he brought him down, then we saw that it says in the last chapter, there were 80 years of peace. But you know what, sadly? As soon as Ehud died, that 80 years of peace came to a quick end. The longest period of peace recorded in the book of Judges. And look what it says. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. No sooner was their godly judge removed that the people lapsed back into idolatry. You know, Israel is portrayed in the book of Judges the way that we see it. It really illustrates for me more religious reformation than spiritual revival. Guys, we can reform our behavior, but that's not what it's about. It's about changing our character. It's about not... Outwardly doing better, but being inwardly transformed. Outwardly doing better will only last for so long. You can do it for a while, but you know what? In the end, you're going to fall back to your own behavior. And that's what we see in the children of Israel. Reformation is temporary, that changing of outward conduct, but revival permanently changes us inwardly. So Ehud is removed, and the idols and the people began again to worship the false gods. When he was there they obeyed him and as soon as he was gone and left him to themselves they went back to their own way. This is why kids need parents. Guys, I'm amazed. I know, now do you think your kids act better when you're sitting at the table than when you're not? Do they act better when they know mom and dad are standing right next to them or listening to their conversation than when you're not around? There's a reason God gives spiritual headship in the home to the parents. And the same is true here when the spiritual leader leaves Things change. And I want to encourage you, moms, when your husband, if your husband is a spiritual leader in your home, if he's out of town, nothing should change in your house. Nothing. should be watching things different. Well, dad's not here. We can get away watching that. Well, dad's not here. We can do this. No, it should be the same. And sadly, when Ehud left, the people ran back to their own desires. It reminds me of the parable when Jesus rid the man of the demon. And You remember what happened. It says he he swept away and cleansed out his house, and, and then seven demons came back even stronger. Because, guys, it's not good enough to get rid of the things of this world. We must be filled with the Spirit of God instead. You can't just get rid of the bad stuff. We need to be transformed from within by the power of the Holy Spirit. An empty heart is prey for all kinds of evil. It's not just what's removed, but what takes its place. Verse 2. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, I talked about him, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Heresheth Hagayim. Now, the Lord sold them into bondage to an ungodly man. And throughout scripture, we'll see places where God will use godless people to bring righteous judgment. And sometimes we'll struggle and think, you know, why is God allowing this to happen to me? And as we're going to see as we go through the text, it's a sign that God loves you. Those who the Lord loves, He disciplines. And because they were in disobedience, God brought a a tyrant of a king, why? That they might be brought to the end of themselves and they might turn back to Him. God loved Israel too much to let them go their own way. There may be times when we wish God or our parents would leave us alone. Ever felt that way before? You know what? It's proof that He loves you. And you don't want Him to let you go. Jabin, the king of Canaan, God uses this ungodly king as a tool for righteous judgment. God can and will use anything to get our attention and to get our eyes back on Him. Jabin's name means wise, but we're going to find out that that's not true. He doesn't live up to his name. It's most probably a title rather than a name and it's probably a a reflection of a man who who had a confederation of kings that served under him. Now Sisera is the commander of his army and his name means battle array. And so this guy's a fighter. And this is the guy that that is going to be commanded to go in and fight against the children of Israel when they start to rise up. Hashereth is a city near Hazor in Galilee. We'll talk about this in a little bit. Just remember, it's right next to Mount Carmel. Those of you who went to Israel with us, we know where that is. It's where Elijah called fire down from the sky. It'll be significant as we get to later verses. Verse 3. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So they cried out to the Lord because... They were broken over their sin. Is that what it says? They cried out to the Lord because they are repentant. It's not what it says. It says they cried out to the Lord because they had been oppressed for 20 years. See, God knows if we're crying out because we're broken or if we're crying out because we've just got caught. And the truth is, these are not sincere tears of weeping, but God is going to deliver them anyway. But the truth is, there's a difference between repentance and just being bummed out that you got caught. Even when God is dealing with us, it still may take a while. Notice it took 20 years for them to repent. How many years would you have to be a slave before you would repent? And we think about half a day. But the truth is that we will rebel against God to the point where we will cut off our nose to spite our face. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to bow. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to do what I want to do. and tough. All right, God, I'll show you. And we do that. And we may not say it out loud, but we do it. We just keep walking in our sin. Youth pastor a long time, and i got four teenagers now. You know what? And that's an age where they'll just, I don't care. Take everything away. Punish me completely. I'm just going to keep doing it, because you're not going to win. And that's how we can get with God sometimes. And so what happens is it takes 20 years before they finally go, okay, Lord, and they cried out to God. And God, showing his, his grace and His mercy, is going to send a deliver. But I want you to see something here. They had 900 chariots of iron. Now, to you and I, may not sound like a big deal, but these chariots were gnarly. They had these things that came out the side, these rods that were, had very sharp parts on them that went out the sides of the wheels 15 feet out on each side. And so when the chariots came in at full force, they'd come in right about knee level. And you're hauling along in a battle, and you would, they would tear their enemy to pieces. The children of Israel didn't have any such weapons. These guys had 900 of these chariots. If that's 15 by 15, like 35 feet wide, just blast them through like a tank today. Just blast them through, and there's 900 of them, and they could just come flying through. There's a huge enemy, a great army that would face them. And for 900 years, they've been oppressed by this wicked king. But again, the reason that they were being oppressed is because they themselves had been disobedient to the Lord. To remember who these guys are, Judah had gone into the land back in Judges 1, and it says in Judges 1, and the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. Same chariots, same people. Now, could they have driven them out? What's the answer? absolutely God told them they could we need to learn that nothing is impossible with God Psalm 20 says some trust in chariots and some in horses but we will remember the name of the Lord our God the Bible says the chariots of God are 20,000 even thousands of angels and the Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place the Lord God is greater than any enemy we will ever fight and it's not even close And our enemy is only great if we forget how great our God is. So Israel cries out, they need a deliverer, and seemingly there was some man who should have stepped up, but none of them did. So instead, what does God do? Look at verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at the time. Now remember I told you that a judge, don't think of a black robe and a gavel. They're not those kind of judges. They were deliverers. Now, part of what they did was, as we'll see with Deborah in the next verse, they would sit and bring judgment, but really what they did was deliver the people, much like a Moses or a Joshua. They would come in and bring the people out of bondage when they were crying out to God. And so here's Deborah. Now, this is confusing for people. Here's Deborah, the prophetess, the proclaimer, foretell, foreteller of truth. There are several prophetesses in the Bible, by the way, many of them, Miriam and Helda and Anna and Philip's four daughters. But not only was she a prophetess, but this is the only woman this is ever said of anywhere in the Bible she was judging over Israel. Now wait a minute. Deborah, the only woman to ever hold such a position. What does the Bible say about women in leadership? What does it say? Let me read something to you out of 1 Timothy. Because the scriptures clearly teach that women shouldn't have authority over men. Look what it says. This is what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor usurp authority over man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first form and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, people will read that and say, see, women are less than men. No, they're not. No way. They're not inferior in any way, shape, or form. And I've even heard people say that Christianity is oppressive to women. Well, I want to prove that wrong real quick for you. Look at the countries where Christianity has come in in great ways, and great force, and you will see the countries where the women have the most freedom. You look at countries where Christianity has been squashed, and you'll see the countries where the women have the least freedom. So the exact opposite is true. The thing that's about the greatest amount of freedom in women is Christianity. And that's because the Lord says that we are one in Him. Now, the issue from the New Testament is not whether God can use women greatly. Of course He can The issue is one of accountability and headship, not superiority. Women can be used greatly by God, but they must be under the headship of those that God has placed in their life. Now, this has nothing, again, to do with superiority. It says that God ordained the order. It's in light of God's creation. It's in light of the presence of the angels. It's in light of the nature and the fall of man. And again, it has nothing to do with inferiority because the Bible says that Jesus submitted himself to the Father. Is Jesus inferior to the Father? What's the answer? No, No, He's not. But He submitted Himself completely. So submission is not a sign of inferiority. It's a sign of a a willing and a servant's heart. It's a sign of a calling to say, you know what? I'm going to freely serve and freely lay down my life and I'm going to submit to the one that God has placed in authority over me. And again, this is something that so many people struggle with. But I'll tell you this. Men, you should never demand that your wife submits to you. And let me tell you why. Because you should be living in such a way that her submitting to you is a joy and not a bummer. You should be living in such a way that you love her and serve her and lay down your life for her and minister to her. The Bible says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That's the verse right after wives submitted to your husbands. It's always good to keep reading. Wives submitted to your husband. There it is. Read the next verse. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Oh. She's not submitting. You're not laying down your life for her. Amen? It's a two-way street. And guy, I want to say this. Women will say to me all the time, man, if my husband was serving, man, it'd be so easy to submit. If he was just on fire and seeking the Lord now, guess what? But that's not really submission. Because if he was on fire for God all the time and you were submitting to him, that'd be easy. Submission is submitting when, and, and, and following when, you don't always agree. That's submission, amen? Amen. And so we're going to see that as we continue to go through this. But watch what happens here. All that being said, it says in verse 5, And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So she's the judge over Israel. She's the deliverer God's going to use this time. But I want you to see some things about her. If God's called men to leave and serve in positions of authority, why did he raise up this woman to be a judge? Deborah is an illustration to me of humble availability, one being used mightily by God. She's willing to be used because, guess what? Nobody else would do it. She was available. God's not looking for ability, but availability. Note, we're going to see in chapter 5, in the Song of Deborah next week, it refers to herself not as a judge or a prophet, but as a mother ministering to her people. She doesn't say, she's singing about herself, and she, got, she says that God raised me up to be a mother to these children. And you know what? I think it's appropriate because it's the people of Israel were acting like children, they were not being spiritually mature. And God brought this woman, Deborah, she said under a palm tree, I love palm trees. I'm convinced they're going to be in heaven, and they're going to be better than the ones that are here. Don't you? Who? I mean, I love palm trees. And you know what I love? I found out about palm trees I love. It's the only tree that bears more and more fruit until it dies. You know, most trees bear more and more, and then they start getting old, and they bear less. It always bears more fruit the older it gets, and that ought to be an encouragement and a picture of every Christian, bearing more fruit the older we get. So she's giving them counsel. Now, Deborah's name means bee, buzz around bee. That's what her name means. Now, I like this because I think it describes her. I wrote some things down. I looked up a bee. You know, the thing about the internet, you can type. So a bee is very industrious. We know that. A bee flaps its wing 190 to- wings 190 times in a second. That's quick. That's where you get the term busy as a bee, right? Now, bees are also discerning. I, I read they can, re- they can smell scents up to five miles away. They can be smell five miles away. They can smell it. They also produce very sweet honey. And then lastly, they have a sting if they need it, right? And I think this describes Deborah. Because she was industrious, she was discerning, she was sweet, and she had a bit of a sting to her when she needed it. And we're going to see that as we move on. But she describes herself as the mother in Israel. And you know what? Moms, moms are the most underrated people on the planet. I mean, when people say, oh, what are you, you're a full-time mom? What are you going to do something worthwhile? What are you talking about? Raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. There's nothing greater in the world. I used to tell my wife all the time when I was, when I was working full-time and pastor, i say, babe, I go out and work 60 hours, and the money we make, we spend, and it's God's money, but you know what? The impact you have on our kids is going to last for an eternity. And don't you forget it. And don't you downplay it. Well, moms need to be industrious and discerning and sweet, and they need to have a sting on occasion. I I read this. I thought this was really good. Guys, we're all going to be nailed by this, but we're all going to go, ouch, because it's true. Let me read this illustration to you. Speaking of an ordinary mom, mom and dad were watching TV when mom said, I'm tired and it's getting late. I think I'll go to bed. She went into the kitchen to make sandwiches for the next day's lunches. She wrenched out the popcorn bowls, took meat out of the freezer for supper the following evening, evening, checked the cereal box levels, filled the sugar container, put spoons and bowls on the table, started the coffee pot brewing for the next morning. She then put some wet towels into the dryer, put a load of clothes into the wash, ironed a shirt, secured a loose button. She picked up the newspaper strewn on the floor, picked up the game pieces left on the table, put the telephone book back in the drawer. She watered the plants, emptied a wastebasket, hung up a towel to dry. She yawned and stretched stretched and headed for the bedroom she then stopped by a desk and wrote a note to the teacher counted out some cash for a field trip pulled a textbook out from hiding under the chair she signed a birthday card for a friend addressed and stamped the envelope wrote a quick note for the grocery store she put both her put both near her purse mom then creamed her face put on some moisturizer brushed and flossed her teeth trimmed her nails hubby called i thought you were going to bed she said i'm on my way She put some water in the dog's dish, she put the cat outside, she made made sure all the doors were locked, she looked in on each of the kids and turned out a bedside lamp, hung up a shirt, threw some dirty socks in the hamper, had a brief conversation with the one kid that was still up doing homework in her room, then she set her alarm, laid out the clothing for the next day, and straightened up the shoe rack. She added three things to her list of things to do for tomorrow. About that time, her husband, down in the living room, announced... To no one in particular, I'm going to bed, and he did. (laughs) You know what? Moms do a lot of stuff. And she says of herself, I'm a mother to them. She didn't say, I'm a prophet, I'm a prophetess, I'm a judge. She said, I'm a mother to them. And I'll tell you what, she does minister to their hearts. Proverbs 31 says this of a virtuous woman. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Can I encourage you? There's, there's, you know what? There's no higher calling than being a godly mom. And I want to encourage you. You be faithful to that. Now, why was she called to lead? Because nobody else was leading. But watch how she leads. There's something to learn here, wives. If your husband is not stepping up to be the spiritual leader in your home, we're going to see how you should encourage him. And we're going to also, I'm going to give you some examples of how you should not try to encourage him. Look at verse 6. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Caesara, the commander of Jabin's army with the chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And I will deliver them into your hand. So she calls her Barak. Barak, if you remember, I told you at the beginning, he was the commander. He's the general of the army. He's really the guy that's supposed to be out there fighting the battle, but he's not doing it. He's kind of like a lot of husbands and fathers today. Not doing what God's called them to do deborah doesn't say what's wrong with you are you out of your mind right what does she say didn't the lord tell us barack didn't the lord say what does the word of god say she encourages him from the word of god she doesn't blast him she doesn't speak down to him she doesn't berate him she doesn't nag him she just says what does the Bible say? Can I remind you what the Lord said to us? And she proclaims the truth, exhorting and encouraging. And you know what I found? People say to me all the time, "You know, Pastor Dave, you're awful repetitive with a lot of the things you say." Some people say, "You know, you're speaking bumper stickers." You, know, you got all these bumper. stickers. We had a girl in the youth group in San Jose that showed up one time had like, like 160 Pastor Davisms that said on the t-shirt, little bumper stickers. And I said, and people say, "Why are you so repetitive?" I said, "Because people need to be told again and again." And the point is that often what we're doing in proclaiming truth is reminding people of things they already know. I had a guy tell me one time he's not coming to church on Sundays anymore because he's read the New Testament. He's only going to come on Wednesdays. I'm like, dude, you've read it. Are you living it? Well, not so much. Then you need to be here. Because the truth is that we need to be reminded of what the Word of God says. Amen? Again and again and again. For Barak, God's Word was being confirmed through Deborah. Deborah, again, doesn't seek to usurp Barak's authority as the general. Instead, she exhorts him and encourages him and reminds him of the word of God. God had commanded Barak to take his troops and men and go fight an overwhelming enemy. And he says there at the end of verse seven, I will deliver him into your hand. It was already promised by God. Kind of like in the days of Joshua. You go, I'll win the battle. You show up, I'll win the battle. Guys, that's all God wants us to do. Show up. Show up. Pray and say, Lord, how do you want to use me today? And when the opportunity comes, say, I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to open my mouth anyway. And you know what? God will work. You be available and God will use you. I will deliver them into your hand. God chose who the leader of the army would be, Barak, the place of the battle, as we will see, the plan to follow. He guaranteed victory. And all that Barak had to do was obediently step out. And Deborah simply says, remember what God said? Wise, maybe it, and again, don't ever do it in a condescending way. But if you and your husband are talking about things, and he doesn't, he hasn't been stepping up, just remind him, doesn't the Bible say? Pray with him and encourage him. Don't jump all over him. Now look at this. This guy, Barak, if anybody could be called a wimp. Look what he says. And Barak said to her, if you'll go with me, then I'll go. Dude, are you the general or what? Can you imagine Schwarzkopf saying to his wife, now, babe, if you'll go with me to Iraq, then I'll go. But otherwise, I'm not going. This is, I mean, this is unbelievable. This is pretty sad. Dude, you know what his name means? Lightning. But he's not living like it. If you'll go with me, then I'll go. But then he says, look, but if you will not go with me, I won't go. I won't go. Deborah, if you go in front of me, then I'll go. Wouldn't go unless Deborah led the way. You know what this is a picture of when we rely on someone's own faith, someone else's faith, rather than our own. You know, can I encourage you something? I love to pray for you guys. It's my privilege. But my prayers are no better than yours. I've had people say that to me. Well, if you pray, then no. I go... I'm a sinner saved by grace just like you. I'm just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. If you saw all of my sin, you would run away from me not ask for prayer. <laughs> Your prayers are heard by God just as much as Billy Graham's. And what's happening here is, well, Deborah, you've got a lot more faith, so if you'll go, then I'll go. Because if you go, then God will be. But God had commanded Barack to go. God told Barack, you go. And he's like, well, I'm not going unless she goes. God, your word's not enough, but if she goes, then I'll go. Now, how does she respond? Wimp? No, that's not what she said. (laughs) She didn't say that. She could have, and she would have been right, but look what it says. (laughs) Verse 9. So she said, I will surely go with you. Ladies, great example. Encourage your husband from the word, but you know what? When your, when your husband or, or the man in your life is not being the man he's supposed to be, walk with him. Stay, stay alongside him. Encourage him. Don't say, when do you get your act together, then come and talk to me. Knucklehead. Loser, right? I mean, you don't do that. Don't do that. Pray for him, encourage him, and say, and if he's, you know, he's, he's fearful, oh, I don't want to, don't, you know, don't ridicule him. Walk with him and encourage him. You've heard my analogy, I'll share it again. Pastor Don used in San Jose talking about marriage. He said, you know, a, a car breaks down and the guys, they're going to get gas and they're walking a far distance and the guy decides to take a shortcut through a, a field. And the woman's behind him, as soon as he takes, goes off the road going, what are you doing going off the road? What's wrong with you? You got to stay on the road. Well, you know what? That's, guys don't respond too well to that. And so he starts walking and all of a sudden he's ankle deep in mud. And she's like, see you. I told you, stupid. We should have stayed on the road. Now we're in the mud. You know what that guy will do? He'll keep walking till that mud is over his head. <laughs> I'm going to prove to you I'm going to keep walking. You know, but here's the difference. What if he walked through the field and his wife said, okay, babe, I'm with you. And then he walks along and all of a sudden he's getting a little bit of mud. He's like, ooh, it's kind of muddy out here. She's like, it's okay, babe, I'm, I'm, I'm still with you. Then he gets a little bit deeper in the mud he goes, this is muddy. I'm going back. She said, Okay. I'm with you. You know what? He can turn back if his wife is with him. And if his wife is, "Ah, ah, ah," you know, guys, your pride rises up and I'm not asking for directions. You know what I mean? That's what we do. We get prideful. And here, Barack, she's like, okay, Barack, you should be going. You're the general. She's just, all right, you want me to go with you? I'll go with you. I'll go with you. It's okay. And praise the Lord for a woman who supports her, you know, they're not married. I don't want anybody to be confused here. You know, Barack is the general and she's the prophetess. But I just see such a clear picture here of the role of this woman exhorting and encouraging the man who's supposed to be doing the job. And the same happening with wives encouraging their husband to be the spiritual leader. But look what does happen though. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey. You know what? A lack of faith does produce a lost blessing. You know, God's work's going to get done with or without you, but if you don't get involved, you miss out on the blessing that comes from it. God's going to, the Bible says if we don't preach it, the rocks are going to cry out His name. Amen. Amen? Amen? I'd like to see that happen. But you know, at the same time, I hope it never has to because we're preaching it like we're supposed to. And so, we see here that he's going to miss out on a blessing. And when you and I are fearful and faithless, we're going to miss out on all that God has for us. If you don't step up, he will appoint another. And again, it says here, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So, if you don't step up, and because you've been faithless, then God's going to bring somebody else to do the work. You know what, guys? I want my life to count for eternity. How about you? And I don't want to miss out on all that God has for me. I, want to, I don't want to be like those two and a half tribes that camp just outside of the land of promise and are looking across and seeing what God's doing. I want to stay where God is working, and I want to be in the center of his will. I get in trouble every time I say this, but I'll say it anyway. I really feel, and God can do anything with my life He wants to, I really feel like I'm in Santa Cruz for the rest of my life. I feel like I'm going to be the pastor of this church for the rest of my life. Now, if God wants to send me to China, I'll go. But you know what? There's a piece about this is what I'm called to do. This is where I'm called to be. And you know what? I have such a burden for this city, I can't even tell you. My heart breaks for it. I weep over this city. I have such a burden to see people saved. I want to see Santa Cruz be Holy Cross. I want to see it to be a place that's on fire for God. And you know, I don't want to miss out on God's highest because I get attracted away to something that's easier. Taken away to where, where real estate is cheaper. Taken away to a place that has anything. You know what? Being the center of God, this is it. And I want to encourage you that let's find the center of God's will and go for it full speed. Verse 10. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. So Barak, encouraged by Deborah's presence, encouraged by her words, steps up. Ladies, encourage your husband and walk with him, and you know what? It may not happen today or tomorrow or next month, but keep doing it, and you know what? In time, he'll step up. You encourage him. Don't discourage him. Encourage him. Wives, encourage and go with your husband. So they went up. Verse 11. Now Heber, remember I had talked to you about this guy, the compromiser. Heber, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent, tent near a terebinth tree at Zaniam, Zon- which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera and Bar- that Barak, the son of Abinam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Now, Habor, his name means cross over. And that's exactly what this guy did. He was a relative related to the children of Israel. The Kenites, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, was a Kenite. They're related to Abraham through his second wife, Keturah. So he's related to the children of Israel, but look who he's going to tell that Barak's armies are mounting up. Who does he go tell? The enemy. Sisera. He goes and tells him, hey, Sisera, dude, I'm just being neutral. I'm Sweden over here, right? Or Switzerland, right? I'm Switzerland. I'm just sitting here. I'm not getting involved because I don't want to get involved. But just so you know, Barack and his army are mounting up over there. He's trying to be neutral when it comes to God's people. And in a sense, before he knows it, he's actually a tool for the enemy. But you know what? In his sovereignty, God's going to use even this guy. Just like he used Judas. Did Judas disobey God? What's the answer? Judas is one person we can say with absolute surety that he's in hell. People struggle with that when you tell them that, but the Bible says it would be better for him if he'd never been born. So where is he? Not in heaven. The Bible wouldn't say that about you if you were in heaven. Better for him if he'd never been born. Now, did God, in the midst of his denial of our Savior, his betrayal of our Savior, did God still use it for his glory? The answer is yes. You know why? Because God's in control. What Satan means for evil, God will use for good. And in in his sovereignty, he's even going to use Heber. Heber going to Sisera and telling him that the armies are mounting up. Verse 13 and 14. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots with iron, and all the people who were with him, from Herosheth Haggaiim to River Kishon. So he mounts up his army, he's got his 900 chariots. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up! I like that. Get up. Barak, time to go. You brought me here so let me give you some encouragement. Go get them. Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? Aren't these words of encouragement? She's not blasting him or berating him. She's like, "Bro, Barack. Go! God's gone before you. It's going to be awesome. I'll tell you what, husbands would be so blessed if a wife just turned and said, Babe, you know what, God's gifted you in this area. I want to support you in that. Go do it. Hey, but God's gifted you. I want to be with you in it. Let's do this together. It's a blessing when husbands and wives do ministry together. He exhorts and encourages encourages him again from the word of God, reminds him of God's promises. One thing to say, Lord, my life is yours. And it's another thing when the 900 chariots are mounted up. It's another thing to say, I'll give my life to you, Lord. And it's another thing when he says, okay, I want you to sell all you have and move to Africa and be a missionary. Well, I didn't mean that. You know, it's one thing to say we'll do it. And it's another thing when the time comes and it's time. Now Barak, he's gone up there, they mounted up the army, but now they're looking out at the chariots. And those things are bad machines. And they're like, we're not quite, you know, Judah ran away from them. And she's like, Barak, go, go. The Lord has already promised that they belong to go. Go get them. Wives, keep loving and encouraging. Be ready to go with him, but let him lead. Now listen, I told you that Hereshoth was at the foot of Mount Carmel. okay. Why is that significant? It says there in verse 14, She told him to go up. Has not the Lord gone? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So they're at the foot of Mount Carmel. They're coming this direction. Down from Mount Tabor comes Barak with his 10,000 men. Guess where they are? This is the Valley of Jezreel or the Valley of Megiddo or Armageddon. Interesting. Interesting. A mighty army coming against God's people in the valley of Armageddon. Where do we see that in the Bible? That's a future battle that's going to take place. And what's interesting, when that battle does take place, there's going to be supernatural intervention. And guess what? In this battle, there was supernatural intervention. Look at the next verse, verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak, and Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. What we don't see here, that we will see in later chapters, is you know how this battle was won? God caused a huge rain to come down and flooded the the area. And guess what happens to chariots in mud? They don't work. So the 900 chariots all of a sudden became 900 boat anchors. (laughs) And they were just stuck. And so what happens? God flooded the ground. He rained down upon it. And through supernatural intervention, he brought victory to the children of Israel. That's exactly what's going to happen in the end times because we're going to come back with them. And there's going to be a battle there. And it's going to be a lot worse than rain. He's going to rain down on them hard. Amen? And the point is we're going to be on God's side. But I love this, that he was obedient and they got, God shows up. You step in the water, the river parts. God wants us to step out. God flooded them with great rain. And what I love about this, who was the God of the Canaanites? Baal. And Baal is the God of what? Rain. You know, what I love about this, this is in the middle of a drought. During the dry season, God brings rain down. So the very God that they thought controlled the rain, the very God that they worshipped, didn't do them any good. Because the false gods of this world will only bring you destruction, not peace. Amen? And so this false god, they thought, was going to bring them the answers, instead brought about was a part of their destruction, because the god doesn't even exist. So the Canaanites worshiped the god of rain. This false god didn't help them any. Jehovah sent the rain. And what did the men do? They ran away. Look at verse 16. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Hash- Haracesheth, So some of the chariots, were, most of them were stuck in the mud, some were, were running away in the opposite direction. and he begins to follow them, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. If God is for us, who can be against us? This is a fulfillment of verse seven, where she said, "Has not the Lord given us victory? He will deploy. He's gonna, we're going to win the battle. She encouraged him. He went out. With the encouragement of Deborah, the battle was won. You know, it's a great thing when a wife is standing behind her husband and encouraging him, and then he goes out and it's fruitful. The sword is God's word. It's the tool that we use to defeat the enemy. The word brings about righteous judgment. And Barak's obedience allowed him to take part in God's victory. So courageous women of faith, Deborah's the first one. What does she do? God's using her to judge the people as the mother to Israel. We'll see that in the next chapter. She encourages and exhorts Barak from the word of God, and she's willing to walk with him when his faith was weak. You know, a lot of women will come and talk to me or call me on the phone and say, well, my husband's just not, you know, being the spiritual leader. And here's the truth. Most of you didn't marry Billy Graham, Right? And often you married men who weren't even saved at the time and then they get saved and you're you're just impatient. Can I encourage you? Pray with him. Pray for him. Encourage him. You be his biggest supporter in his walk with the Lord. And guys, you lay down your life for your wife and serve her. And Deborah was industrious and discerning and sweet, but she had a sting to her when she needed. Get up, Iraq. Go! Now we're going to see Jael, the wife of a compromising husband, making a stand for God. Look at this. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, remember him, crossing over, Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. As we said before, this was the king of compromise. And he was the one that, though related to the children of Israel, chose to help Sisera and tell him that Barak was mounting up. So here he is, this compromiser, And Sisera, notice he's running away. Sisera, the man who was the commander, all of a sudden, he's running away. When we put our faith in our own strength, soon we will find ourselves alone and running for our lives. Here the story takes an unexpected turn because God had promised that he would defeat Sisera at the hand of what? At what? A woman. And you would think, oh, Deborah. No, God had another plan. So the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the compromiser, again, who had informed Sisera about a six-mile trek from where he had been fighting. And in Sisera's eyes, when he saw Jael, this was a woman he had once ruled over, a woman in his eyes who had been friendly toward him, or at least her husband had, and was an ally in his eyes. He's running away. He's all alone, so he runs to her. Verse Verse 17. Verse 18, excuse me. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not fear. And when he turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Now, I want to say this. You were not to go into a woman's tent unless you were married to her. But she invited him in and said, Don't be afraid. Something only a husband should do. But because of the past alliance, he didn't fear her invitation. And no doubt he thought this was the perfect hiding place. Because no man would come looking for a a, a guy who's running away in a woman's tent. They just knew that that's the last place he would be. So he thought, what a great hiding place. So he lays down and she puts a blanket on him. Some of your translations say a mantle. So these are large black tents pitched by the women. Now, keep in mind, the women were the ones who pitched the tents. And that's still true today in the Bedouin tribes. You go to Israel with us, you're going to see all these black tents when you drive around. And these black tents, are the women pitch them and the women are the one that set them up. Now look what it says, verse 19. Then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. No doubt he's thirsty. He's been running. He's tired. It's hot. Give me some water to drink. Now look what she gives him. This is kind of a clue where we're headed. So she opens up a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Now, what do you think milk might be like In a 110 degree heat in a black tent. Hot and sour. Now, the guy's been running. He's tired. He's been running for his life at least six miles straight. He's exhausted. She gives him milk and puts him under a blanket. What do you think he might do? Good night now. He's going to sleep. Now, I think it's interesting, and this is a play on words, and I try, but... She covered him with a mantle and now she slips him a mickey. This is really what happens. And she's about to hit a home run. We're going to see it, right? Mickey mantle if you don't pay any attention. But it's true. She covers him with a mantle. She slips him a mickey. Now watch what happens. And he said to her, verse 20, Stand at the door of the tent and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there a man, any man here? You say no. So if somebody comes from the children of Israel, just lie to him for me. Just tell them no you know what, this is her opportunity to compromise and remain neutral. She had to choose sides now. She had to make a decision. Now, her husband had already aligned with Sisera, that, or she could side with God's people. She could side with what her husband had decided to do, or she could side with God's people. Now again, I want to make sure we talk, when we talk about this, we give some balance. Now look what it says. Look at verse 21. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground. For he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. I guess so. Someone drives a tent peg through your head? You're dead. He's, she gives him, covers him with a mantle, slips him a Mickey, and lays him down, and goes over there quietly. And, and she was, she set up tents. That's what she did. She knew how to drive a tent peg. This probably was one slam. Well, bam! Right, right through his head. I think we know whose side jail's on. I think we figured it out. She didn't go with the compromise of her husband. She didn't go with him. Oh well, I'm going to be on this. She said, I'm going to be on God's side. I'm going to be on the side of God's people. And I'm not going to just say it, but I'm going to prove it. And when he comes into the tent, she takes care of him. Guess what? This fulfills Deborah's prophecy. What did she say? Barak, you're not going to kill Sisera. It's going to, he's going to die at the hand of a woman. Bible, again, is 100% accurate. She honored God instead of her husband's ungodly alliance. Now, I want to say this because this is a delicate situation. All the women call me and say, well, my husband wants me to do this, or my husband wants to do that, or my husband wants me to go to another church. If your husband wants you to go to another church and they're teaching the Word, go with him. Go with him. Well, my... Now, if your husband wants you to do drugs with him, don't do that. If your husband's telling you to do something that's directly contrary to the Word of God, say, babe, I love you, but I'm not doing that. Do you understand what I'm telling you? You submit to him unless what he's telling you to do is 100% contrary to the Word of God. And what was happening here was Heber had entered into an alliance with God's enemy. And she said, I'm not following that. I'm honoring God. There's going to be a time when your husband wants to get up and maybe he's not saved and he wants to to go to the beach and he tells you not to go to church. Well, I want to encourage you to lovingly tell him, babe, I love you and I want to spend time with you but I love God more. I'm going to church. that's not easy always. But I've had people say, "Well, we're, you submit to your husband no matter what he tells you." I disagree with that. Children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. My kids should not obey me if I tell them if I try to, you know, have one of my children do something illegal. They should not obey dad if I tell them to do, you know, go in there and steal some stuff for us. <laughs> no, dad, I'm not doing that. Well, honor your mother and father. I don't think so. I don't think that applies. If your husband wanted you to enter into prostitution, would you? No. Again, she had to re- reject or denounce following God or follow her husband. And I want to be very careful with this. Because even if he asks you to do something that's off the wall and out of control, you still respond in love and in grace and in mercy and in a Christ-like way. Amen? You still come back to him and say, I don't agree with that. Here's why. I love you, babe. But here's what I need to do. Okay? Verse 22. And then, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, "Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. I bet he wasn't ready for this picture. <laughs> and when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. Wow, like I said, would this be a miniseries or what? This chapter? some gnarly stuff going on here. Now look at verse so the so on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in his presence, in the presence of the children of Israel. You know what happened? Barak was obedient, Deborah had been encouraging him. Jael had been bold and decisive, and God's going to be the one that gets all the credit. Now I want to say this before we move on to the last verse. A lot of people struggle with what Jael did, and they wonder if it was okay with God. Because she invited him into her tent, she told him not to be afraid, she violated her husband's treaty with him. She gave the impression that she would guard the door. She gave him some milk so he would nod off to sleep, and then she killed him. That would look like liar and murderer, right? But how do we know if she's doing what God says? Well, Judges 5, next chapter, Deborah's singing a song, and she says, Blessed among women shall the wife of Heber, the Canaanite, be. Blessed shall she be above the women in her tent. This was not an act of murder, but an act of war. A courageous woman who finally stopped being neutral and decided to stand with the people of God. This verse is a picture that you and I are fighting today between our spirit and our flesh. Guys, we're at war. The Bible says we battle not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities and even forces of darkness in high places. But at the same time, you and I have a battle that goes on in our life every single day. Who are we going to obey? Who are we going to follow? The flesh, like Sisera, demands us to lie. Sisera said lie. Just tell a lie. Just go to the tent and tell them that that I'm not here. And our flesh would say, tell a lie. The Bible says in Romans, Reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. We're to be instruments of righteousness. We're not to be slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, Romans says. So the flesh, and again, this is your pastor's opinion, okay? So... What did he say when he came? Sisera, picture of the flesh. He said, I thirst. Give me something to drink. What does our flesh say to us? I thirst. I'm hungry. Feed me. By the way, you feed your flesh, it will never be satisfied. Amen? What happens when you feed your flesh? It gets stronger and bigger. And once more. And one of the biggest lies it'll tell you is, just do it one more time. You got to work those wild oats out of your system. Right? So some wild oats, you just got to get that out of your system. You're not going to get anything out of your system. Your system's just going to get bigger and stronger and hungrier. You know, it always blew my mind when people would tell me that. Well, my kids need to go out and experience some things in life so that they can... I want my kids to experience nothing but Jesus. How about that? I want them to be simple concerning evil. That's what the Bible tells us. So it says, feed me. Now, I love this. And again, your pastor's opinion, okay? But what does she give him instead of water? Instead of feeding him what he wants, she gives him milk. The Bible refers to milk as the, word, the milk of what? The word of God. How do we defeat the flesh? We don't feed it. We respond with the word of God. Remember when the Lord was tempted in the wilderness? How did he respond to every temptation? With the word of God. And so every time you're tempted, respond with the word of God. Respond with the word of God to your temptations. And then the Bible tells us we're to put the old man to death. The Bible says we are crucified with Christ. You know what? What was driven into our Savior? Stake. A nail. And you know what? Because he died for us, our old man is now dead. We can put that old man to death. We can walk a victorious Christian life. You know what? The word there, render dead, in Romans, is Paralyzed. And I believe that's the best way to describe it because our old flesh can yell at us, but it can't make us do anything. If a man's paralyzed, he can yell at you, but he can't force you to do anything. And our flesh can yell at us and and try to draw us away, but it can't make us do anything. Guys, we don't have to give in to sin. Now, are we going to sin? Yes. But that's not a cop-out to say that we should sin. Does that make sense? We don't have to give in to sin. We choose to, but my prayer would be, I would not be I know I'm not going to be sinless, but that I would sin less. Amen. That I would walk in the center of his will in every aspect of my life, and put the flesh to death daily. Last verse, and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. Notice what happens: putting the, the man to death, and now they grew stronger and stronger. The same happens for you and I. As we put our flesh to death, as you, as you reject sin, you notice, guys, when you reject temptation, it's easier to walk away from it the next time. And then the next time, and then the next time, before long, it's not even a temptation anymore. And we need to stay desperate so we don't fall into it. So in closing, courageous women of faith, what's a woman to do when the man won't stand up? First, be like Deborah. Encourage him in his calling. Walk with him patiently. And be like Jael. When it's time to choose between honoring God in your home or doing something outside of God's will, even if it's something that your husband would encourage you to do, it's time for you to make a stand for God. Can I encourage you with that? And I'll tell you what, marriages would be radically transformed if women would be like Deborah, encouraging their husbands rather than coming after them. And guys, don't forget to reject your responsibility to love and serve and honor your wife. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you for your word we thank you for these examples, Lord, that apply to our lives even now. We ask, Lord, that you would just bless each marriage that's represented here. Father, be with the, each wife, Lord. Help her to step out in courageous faith, Lord, in and, and praying for her husband and encouraging him and walking with him and being, again, just encouraging him to walk with you. And Lord, for the, even the young women here who are not married, Lord, may they too be women who stand with you instead of the world. Help us all, Lord, to put our our old man to death daily. We know that's a struggle we have, to die to ourselves, to our will, to our flesh. But Lord, we know that, that Lord, you've given us the ability to do that as we walk in the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Your word says that we walk in the fullness of the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So may we be passionate for you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.